Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Advances in the Treatment of Colorectal Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as two colorectal organizations, um, Colorectal Cancer Alliance and Fight Colorectal Cancer. So wonderful resources, all of them for you, um, um, as well as Cancer Care. Um, today's program, um, we are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. Um, it really is because of your interest in the topic and all of our collaborating groups who've helped to spread the word. We have over 454 participants on the call today. So there are lots of you on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, Finland, Germany, India, Ireland, Nigeria, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's really a bit of a global call, actually, quite a bit of a global call, actually. And um, we're delighted to have all of you on the call. Um, today's program is supported by Pfizer, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Taiho Oncology, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director of Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Laurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson is going to provide an overview of colorectal cancer, including new treatment approaches, treatment of metastatic or refractory colorectal cancer, and the role of precision medicine or predicting response to treatment. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and it's a pleasure to join everyone today. March happens to be Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, so it's particularly appropriate that we are addressing this topic today, which we hope will increase uh, awareness of at least some of the important issues uh, around uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, colorectal cancer remains a major health problem around the world. And uh, we do know uh, quite a bit uh, about this disease, which we often refer to as a preventable disease because we do have screening techniques and we can identify for many people what's referred to as a precursor lesion, such as a colon polyp, which has the potential to develop into a cancer if it is not removed. So that is why there is such emphasis on screening for colorectal cancer. The incidence of colorectal cancer in the U.S. is highest in African Americans and lowest in Asian Americans. However, across all groups, there is declining incidence with the exception that we are noticing an increase in the numbers of younger individuals, these are individuals younger than age 50, who are developing colorectal cancer. 
this is an area of particular interest. Uh, whether this rising incidence is due to dietary changes perhaps, or what's known as the intestinal microbiome. And these are the natural bacteria in our intestines, which uh, uh, may be contributing uh, to a rise in colorectal cancer. And as an aside, the microbiome is an area of intense interest in terms of its association with our immune system. So there, there's a great deal of work now exploring the microbiome. Um, we uh, do put uh, emphasis on staging when people are diagnosed with uh, uh, colon cancer, and we do use what's known as the TNM system, which uh, stands for tumor nodes, as in lymph nodes, and metastases. And the staging is critical because it helps us determine uh, which is the best intervention for an individual uh, patient, and that includes the role of uh, surgery. Uh, surgery can also be employed for patients who have spread, uh, have spread of their cancer to isolated areas, such as in the liver and lung. And uh, that is a strategy where we evaluate individuals very carefully with metastatic disease to see if there may be a role for those individuals beyond what we most typically uh, provide, which is uh, a chemotherapy approach for the metastatic uh, patients. For those individuals who can have successful uh, removal of their tumors, uh, surgically. We also have to determine if additional therapy, referred to as adjuvant therapy, is uh, important for that individual. And the concept behind that is to destroy any tumor cells that might remain. Uh, and thus, by doing so, we hope to prevent recurrence. Just to go back a bit in terms of risk factors, um, the, uh, uh, we do look very carefully to make sure there is not a genetic link uh, across a family. Um, the uh, genetic uh, association uh, f uh, for colorectal cancer occurs in a relatively small proportion of people. However, it is important to identify because it can affect the screening strategy uh, after therapy for an individual who has had colon cancer and an inherited uh, known risk, uh, the most common of which is known as Lynch syndrome, but also it affects how we screen uh, family uh, members. Uh, about 70% of individuals who develop colorectal cancer do not have a familial link, and, and those cases are referred to as uh, sporadic cases of colorectal cancer, and they're clearly the majority of individuals. However, it is important, uh, there, there may be uh, other family members 
an immediate family member that has a, a colorectal cancer, and we have not identified a genetic link. That is important to know because if you have an immediate family member with a colon cancer, your risk has increased for your development of a colorectal cancer. So family history is extremely uh, important. I also want to emphasize uh, the importance of the multidisciplinary team in the care of patients uh, with colorectal cancer. And this team typically consists of a gastroenterologist, a surgeon, a medical oncologist, a pathologist, and uh, for some individuals, genetic counseling. And uh, there may be a, uh, certainly a role for uh, radiologists to participate in the care of people. So it is important that each individual know there are multidisciplinary team members who are essential uh, for the care of individuals uh, with this type of cancer. There have been a number of inroads in the uh, treatment of colorectal cancer, particularly for those individuals who have metastatic disease or disease that has spread to other organs. And this has resulted in very significant improvement in outcome for individuals with metastatic disease. I already mentioned that for some people with metastatic disease, we look carefully to see if surgical removal of a metastatic site may be useful for that individual. But in addition, we now have five chemotherapy drugs, six biologics, and a couple of immunotherapeutic drugs, which results in our ability to actually look at hundreds of different combinations and sequences for any individual person. So we look at each individual to determine over the long run what is the best strategy to treat their uh, metastatic disease and which combinations will be most successful. Uh, one of the uh, important aspects of uh, diagnosing colorectal cancer uh, and offering treatment for individuals is the understanding of colorectal cancer biology. And there have been some striking inroads in our understanding, which has led to the development of specific treatment strategies. Uh, now, uh, I, I mentioned uh, immunotherapy and I mentioned genetic risk. And, uh, and uh, there is uh, a very important test that we now routinely uh, test for patients with colorectal cancer using their tumor specimen, and that's referred to as microsatellite instability testing, and it's also referred to uh, mismatch uh, repair testing. Uh, there are uh, different uh, uh, laboratory assays we use to test for mismatch repair or MSI, but they represent the same biological phenomenon. Um, and uh, with microsatellite instability, what that refers to 
um, are microsatellites, which are short repeating DNA sequences across the human genome. And these sequences are prone to errors. And fortunately, we have genes that can correct these errors so that, uh, for example, cell division can proceed normally. However, uh, the, these mismatch repair genes can be altered. And, and in that situation, it can lead to the development of cancer. Now, this alteration can include um, uh, what's in referred to as Lynch syndrome, an inherited situation where there are what are known as germline mutations, which refers to uh, what we are born with. Uh, but in the majority of cases, these are uh, uh, non-inherited uh, events. Nonetheless, this is a group of patients who may respond to immunotherapy, and so it's an important part of our assessment for everyone with uh, colorectal cancer. Also, it's important because we can identify people who might have an inherited uh, risk uh, for um, uh, the development of colorectal cancer. Uh, we now have uh, two uh, immunotherapy drugs that we typically can use for people with MSI uh, tumors. Um, however, there is growing research looking for people who may not have a, a tumor profile where immunotherapy would be an appropriate match at this time. But through research, we hope to identify more people who will um, respond to therapy. And so there, there is work looking at what's known as an immunoscore, uh, in the laboratory, as well as looking at what's known as tumor mutation burden to see if we can identify uh, other individuals who might benefit from immunotherapy. Um, there are also other laboratory tests that help determine treatment strategy. So another uh, test that is really mandatory for a person with metastatic colorectal cancer is what is known as RAS testing. And this is important because about uh, half of people will have what's known as wild-type RAS uh, on their, in their tumors, and these are the individuals who can potentially benefit for, uh, from what's known as anti-EGFR therapy. And we have two drugs, cetuximab and panituvimab, uh, that can be given either uh, by themselves or more typically in combination with chemotherapy that can benefit the individual who has wild-type RAS tumor. Unfortunately, the strategy does not work for people with mutated RAS, and uh, uh, this has been a challenge to develop new treatment strategies uh, for people with mutated RAS. These individuals, however, can respond to chemotherapy and routinely receive such. Uh, now, there, there's another biologic phenomenon known as HER2 expression, and we learned a great deal about HER2 expression. Uh, from individuals with breast cancer 
and stomach cancer. And for those individuals who have ER2 expression, we actually have targeted therapies that can be given with chemotherapy also, which can improve outcomes. And we have also learned in colon cancer, there are people with HER2 uh, tumors. And uh, I suspect in the near future, the, the treatment of these individuals in a similar way as we uh, combine therapies for breast and stomach cancer uh, will uh, become very uh, standard. Um, um, I also want to conclude uh, with another new uh, development. Uh, there is another uh, biological phenomenon noticed as entrac um, fusions. Now, this is uh, interesting because uh, this type of fusion can be seen across different types of cancers. And uh, uh, this work identifying these fusions has led to recent FDA approval of a drug called larotrectinib, which can uh, help people with these fusions. And in colon cancer, there are very small numbers of patients who may have these fusions. And for these individuals, which we can identify by doing genomic testing from their tumors, um, these individuals may benefit from this new drug. And so it just adds more ammunition to our work looking at human tumor biology and, uh, you know, identifying uh, these uh, genetic or molecular alterations that can further improve our ability to appropriately select patients for cancer therapy. So I'm going to conclude there. There's obviously a lot more that can be covered in this area, but I wanted to give you just a sampling of some of the important work uh, that has uh, occurred, especially during the last 10 to 15 years that have really altered the way uh, we uh, evaluate and treat patients with this disease. So thanks for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding and a wonderful overview of colorectal cancer and just the whole presentation. It's wonderful, so thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is Clinical Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology. Department of Medical Oncology, Director, Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director, Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson. And Dr. Mitchell will be presenting on clinical trials, side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain management, and communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Be uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. And thank you for the opportunity to participate with this great panel today. Um, this is Colorectal Cancer Month, and therefore important for us to think about um, diagnosing colorectal cancer at an earlier um, stage uh, so that we can increase the number of individuals with cures. So I emphasize that. And there have been many clinical trials that have offered 
physicians better understanding of the disease, colorectal cancer, but not only better understanding of the disease, uh, better ways of diagnosing and treating the disease. So clinical trials are held to determine, number one, the causes of colorectal cancer, uh, how we can improve the diagnostic test for patients, and how we can uh, give improved treatment for the disease. So clinical trials, very important to help us with understanding colorectal cancer, improving our diagnostic test, and giving patients improved treatment. A good source of clinical trials is by uh, the Internet and finding clinicaltrials.gov and looking onto that site. It is a very important uh, site for finding out information about clinical trials and one of the best sources of information on clinical trials in the world. So clinicaltrials.gov. It is very important in clinical trials to find and give tumor biopsies or specimen of the tumor. And what does that help with? Understanding the tumor is very important. And it may help us define uh, more information about the tumor But for the patient, it gives us understanding of the individual tumor, and therefore, asking your physician about the genomic uh, profile of your tumor is very important because not only does it help us understand the uh, cancer, but it helps us define the best treatment for the individual patient. Therefore, making sure that we have the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. So it is important that you ask the question to your physician and the treatment team about the status of your tumor's genomic profile. Some of the recent findings from clinical trials both in the United States as well as throughout the world, uh, have shown that there is a rising incidence of colorectal cancer in young individuals, uh, but this is just opposite of what we're seeing. And I don't say in older individuals. I say in the more mature individuals. But we're seeing an increase in colorectal cancer in individuals in their 40s, in their 30s, and even in teenagers. Unfortunately, we cannot give you a single reason why there is uh, an increased incidence of colorectal cancer in young individuals. It has been assumed that it is perhaps due to uh, lifestyle changes, diet, and others, but the bottom line is we don't know. And if there is a young person with abdominal persistence of symptoms, pain, change in stool habits, um, frequency, 
and blood in the stool. These individuals should be investigated, and you can ask the doctor, have they evaluated for cancer? So it's very important. Some of the potential factors associated with the development of colon cancer in young individuals may be related to inherited or genetic diseases, uh, diets, smoking, obesity, uh, other abdominal diseases such as ulcerative uh, colitis. We don't know all of the causes, but these have been attributed to the increasing incidence in young individuals. So very important that these individuals uh, participate in clinical trials so that we can not only find the reason for uh, the increasing incidence, but we can develop some preventive strategies that may help us decrease the number of cancers occurring in younger individuals. Some of the important findings from colorectal cancer clinical trials recently have included uh, when to start chemotherapy after surgery uh, for colorectal cancer. And there have been some very important studies conducted and reported showing that delay of starting chemotherapy after colon cancer surgery, if the chemotherapy is needed, uh, by delaying uh, for more than four weeks uh, increases the um, risk of cancer recurrence, but also decreases the effectiveness of the treatment. So if chemotherapy is needed after surgery, um, talk with your uh, physicians and treatment team about starting the chemotherapy approximately four weeks after surgery. And if you delay so that it started at, let's say, 12 or 8 weeks, uh, that decreases the effectiveness of the treatment. So starting chemotherapy at the right time, very important. Another clinical trial has shown that um, women who are postmenopausal and are taking oral bisphosphonates for either osteoporosis or osteopenia uh, have a decrease in colorectal cancer. And there have been several recent studies demonstrating that uh, treatment of um, loss of bone density or osteoporosis, uh, that those medications can also help uh, take care of uh, lowering the risk of colorectal cancer. Um, again, these are only found through clinical trials, so very important to participate in clinical trials. Now I will discuss some of the findings uh, regarding side effects of treatment, but remember that there can be side effects of the cancer itself, uh, side effects of surgery, or if radiation is needed. Uh, so it's very important that um, you talk with your doctors about the potential side effects of treatment before the treatment begins uh, so that you have an understanding and in many cases can prevent some of the side effects of chemotherapy. So get an understanding of what the treatment will be 
and what are the potential side effects. Remember also that any medication can uh, cause a side effect, any cancer treatment, but also when you mix cancer medicines or cancer treatments with other medicines that you might be taking, there is the potential for drug-drug interactions. So always let your care team know about medications that you are taking, and this includes over-the-counter medications and other uh, medications that you might be uh, receiving from some other source. So let your doctors know and the healthcare team about every single medication uh, that you're taking, and this can help uh, decrease the side effects from uh, chemotherapy and other radiation and other treatments, but also give the patient the best outcomes from treatment. So let your doctors know about every single thing uh, that you take, whether it's off the uh, over-the-counter medications, prescriptions from other uh, practitioners, or medications that you may get from other individuals, including those medications and um, um, other uh, drugs that could be even received from individuals on the street or from non-practitioners. So that's very important. Now, some of the side effects of uh, chemotherapy and radiation could include uh, hair loss, loss of appetite, nausea and vomiting. Uh, And by the way, there are medications that can be given prior to chemotherapy and radiation that can actually prevent nausea and vomiting. So don't assume that every patient is going to get all of these side effects. It doesn't happen and ask your healthcare team how you can uh, prevent them. But some of them, easy bruising or bleeding, uh, fatigue, uh, an increased risk of infections, diarrhea or constipation, mouth sores, and uh, high blood pressure. Some of the medications that we use for treating colorectal cancer can increase uh, the blood pressure. So you want to make sure that all of your doctors are talking together and that there is monitoring of blood pressure if needed. Uh, Neuropathy, hand-foot syndrome, and hand-foot syndrome can occur with an irritation of the feet from some medications. But if you already have fungal infections of the feet or other problems before uh, starting colorectal cancer treatment, make sure you talk with your healthcare team about that. Uh, Some of the medications cause rashes or poor wound healing. Uh, Sometimes there can be problems with fecal incontinence, Um, but make sure that you discuss them with your doctor. There are also some of the medications that have been caused, uh, attributed to a syndrome called chemo brain. And what patients tell us is that Uh, Their thought processes uh, have changed, their thinking, uh, their ability to uh, manage numbers, checkbooks, and so forth uh, have changed. So with any finding, let your doctor or someone on the healthcare team 
know about it. Uh, now, n no one patient uh, has all of the symptoms, but talk with your doctors about them, and they can help you prevent these side effects in most cases. Now, another area that is talked about now, but um, few actually realize that, and it's called financial toxicity. And by financial toxicity, it means what does the cancer treatment cost, and is it going to be covered by insurance? Do I have to pay for it out of my pocket? And you can ask questions of the healthcare team about the cost of the medical care, uh, what kind of tests will be needed, uh, how much will these tests cost, will my insurance cover it, uh, how frequently will I have to go to the doctor's office, how frequently are scans needed, what is the cost of parking, how many hours will I need to be there for treatment, and will someone else need to come with you to the treatment. So these are all questions that you can ask your healthcare team and answers to all of them will allow for uh, a better quality of life during treatment, a better and greater effectiveness outcome of the treatment, and better results. So it's also very important. Ask your doctor and healthcare team any questions that you have. I always tell my patients that the worst question you can have is the one that you never ask anybody about. So with that, I thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to uh, speak today, and I look forward to the questions and answers. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Mitchell. That was really outstanding and so informative and covering a wide area of topics that are so important, and I know will come up during the Q&A. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Ms. Diana Bergen. Ms. Bergen is a dietitian, an oncology dietitian um, at the Michael E. DeBake EVA Medical Center. Um, Ms. Bergen is going to be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, and it's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Bergen. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of colorectal cancer. Um, just to start with, um, nutrition and hydration are essential um, in how you tolerate your treatment and also providing you the energy to do the things you enjoy. Um, during treatment, even before treatment, your diet might be modified based on symptoms that you're experiencing. <clears throat> And um, this is where you want to be sure to connect with your healthcare team and communicate issues as they arise rather than waiting. Um, oftentimes, just like we've heard in the presentation thus far, there are several medications that can be helpful in addressing those side effects and those issues that you may be going through and giving you relief sooner rather than later. But um, just to add to some of the potential side effects, um, we heard about constipation, diarrhea, mouth sores, um, changes in taste is also possible, increased fatigue, um, decrease in appetite. Uh, all these are very common, and the, the healthcare team is equipped to help support you and guide you in um, addressing these, these side effects that you may go through. A dietitian can help provide you with modifying your diet based on what your individual needs are, but 
not just that, but helping with you maintaining your lean muscle mass as much as possible by giving you guidance on calorie and protein goals, as well as fluid needs. A lot of times fluid gets left behind in the conversation, but dehydration is very common and it can cause a whole other slew of side effects and enhance those that may already be there as well. So hydration is a very important thing to be mindful of. Um, But even this is what I get a lot of times, patients will say, oh, you know, it's okay, I have weight to lose, I, I've been carrying weight, and I've been wanting to lose weight, this is a good time to lose weight, and I always stop patients and remind them that um, even if you're overweight, you can still be malnourished. Um, I know our society doesn't always um, communicate um, well about health and things to really look for when you have special circumstances going on. But trust your healthcare team and realize that you're going through a big surgery, you're going through treatment, you're you're losing weight potentially, and all these sorts of things impact your overall health. So your needs are individual. But um, again, going to your dietitian um, to help understand what your needs are, to help maintain that muscle, because our muscle actually gives us um, the endurance, the energy, to do the things we enjoy doing for the time that we're used to doing it. So when our weight drops quickly, it's typically not going to be fat that we lose. It's going to be muscle. And that can become very frustrating for patients because they want to be able to do several of the activities they enjoy, but they're feeling very tired. And the the chemotherapy and the other surgeries and things like that can add to the fatigue, but so can the loss of muscle mass. So this is something you can work on. Um, There are medications like we heard about to help with the side effects that you might be experiencing, and again, letting them known sooner than later. But as around food, when we talk about food, if you're experiencing side effects when you're eating, after you're eating, um, keep a record of the, the the feelings you're having, the experiences you're having, what you have eaten. Um, it can be very helpful for the dietitian and your team um, in supporting you and making changes to, to see what we can do to help things um, get better. Um, especially if you've um, undergone a procedure and you've required an ostomy, an ileostomy or colostomy, um, and you're working on managing that output, um, a diet record is very good to keep to help us support you in seeing what you're going through and help you as an individual. And just to reiterate, um, hydration, very, very important. Dehydration can increase symptoms like nausea, fatigue, make you feel dizzy, um, unsteady. And a reminder that fluids fluids are anything that's liquid at room temperature. So this includes water, milk, sports drinks, fruit juice. Um, But general guidelines, um, just giving this out, that most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. So that equates to about 64 to 80 ounces of fluid a day. And some treatments can increase your need for fluid, such as radiation. Um, and so this is where we want to, you know, meet with you one-on-one and really kind of get down to the nitty-gritty of what you need. Um, in closing, I just want to you know, remind everybody there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you, um, and please reach out to them. Utilize their 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 talents and their skills, and um, let them support you. Uh, thank you so much for allowing me to be part of today's uh, workshop. I'll pass the line over to Carolyn. 
Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was very informative and helpful to everybody, and appreciate that excellent uh, presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you always during the Q&A as well. Um, we're going to have questions shortly, so I just want to let everyone know to stay tuned for questions. Prepare your questions, because we're going to, um, very soon, Crystal will be uh, telling you how to cure for questions. Some of you are doing this already, but I uh, want to be sure everyone knows how to do that. But before we do that, I just want to say a few words about the services and resources you can access from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, it's staffed by uh, professionally trained oncology social workers. They all have a master's degree in social work. And we provide a host of services from practical and financial assistance. Um, and the financial assistance is a great need for many of you, as you well know. We also have a copay foundation as well. Um, we also provide counseling services, or chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers, either on the phone or online, and uh, around issues that may be of concern to you. For example, how do I talk to my children about my cancer? Or how do I talk to my boss about having cancer? Or how do I think about it myself? So issues that you, things that you think about that are really uh, troubling to you um, and really um, may, may want to have some help in just coping with them. And um, we also provide um, both telephone and online support groups. At the moment, we have about 138 online support groups, which I know is very um, helpful to many of you throughout the country and throughout the world to some extent because those groups are very helpful to people in terms of just um, there is no uh, time uh, you can you can post anytime you wish, and you also can actually, um, and they're all moderated by a professionally professionally trained oncology social worker, and our telephone groups the same way. Um, and so those are terrific resources for those of you who might like to be in a group with people who might have similar concerns. So our, we have caregiver support groups, we have support groups for young adults, older adults. Um, we have support groups with colon cancer, with specific types of colon cancer. So we have really lots of distinction, lots of different types of groups, and the same for the telephone groups as well. And we also have, of course, these workshops, um, and, and we also have many publications that we have available as well. So with that being said, there are lots of resources that you can access for free. And um, um, so I now we're going to take questions. So I'm going to ask... Um, uh, Crystal, to explain to all of you how to cure for questions, and to please bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and uh, and then um, we will then, um, you know, um, if we don't get to your question, I will explain to all of you how to cure for questions um, um, at the um, at the end of the call. So, uh, Crystal, thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Ron R. Your line is open. Hi. First of all, thanks for a very informative uh, talk. Uh, in my particular case, my question derives from I had what's turned out to be a stage one uh, cancer, but I got treated with uh, 45 grays of radiation to shrink the tumor before surgery and then follow up full fox. And uh, I'm, of course, delighted with the fact that that was 10 years ago and the colonoscopy and blood tests show that 
it was completely successful. But I understand that, and here's my question, uh, that forevermore, and it's quite acceptable, a trade-off, I have a several percent chance of secondary cancers of, uh, due to the radiation and chemo. My question is, what are the incidences of secondary cancers due to heavy radiation treatments and, and chemo? And is there anything I and the doctor can do to, to um, either with drugs or with diet to uh, uh, prevent a recurrence? Well, thank you for that excellent question. Um, and um, Dr. Um, uh, Benson, do you want to start with that? And um... Well, you're you're right that uh, with radiation exposure, there can be the risk of second cancers. Uh, the incidence of such is is usually uh, many many years um, uh, after exposure to the therapeutic radiation. Now, uh, it's also true uh, that over time, radiation therapy has evolved, and there is uh, uh, tremendous progress in limiting exposure to normal tissues. Um, but uh, the risk is uh, small. Um, probably uh, a higher risk is a risk for a brand new colorectal cancer, which is why we do uh, colonoscopies at regular intervals looking for polyps so that they can re be removed before they transform to a cancer. So I, I think what's important when people have had this exposure is to certainly follow the recommendations for colonoscopy, but uh, if if one develops uh, symptoms, uh, and they may be uh, symptoms such as weight loss, uh, loss of appetite, um, uh, pain in a given location, uh, not to ignore it, and it will be important to tell your physician that you have this history of radiation exposure. Um, but the the risk is is pretty low for a second radiation induced uh, cancer. Uh, Dr. Mitchell may want to add to that. Dr. So, Mitchell, uh, so yes, that that is absolutely correct, Dr. Um, Benson. But understanding that we don't know all of the information about second cancers, uh, and that is because more and more patients are living, we are now seeing what we call late effects of treatment. And late effects of treatment can include the radiation effect on normal other organs, um, it can also uh, be the fact that more people are living and therefore with continued follow-up, we find uh, more cancers, more other side effects. For example, uh, there can be an increased incidence of bladder cancers. The bladder cannot be fully protected from the irradiation for colorectal cancer. And therefore, um, the physician uh, may have to test for uh, other cancers, not only in the colorectal uh, tract, 
uh, are in the colon, uh, but in or- other organs as well. So it's best to discuss the follow-up and follow-up testing that is needed uh, based on the type of treatment that individuals uh, have undergone. So again, it's every patient is different, treatments are different, and therefore very important to discuss with your healthcare team uh, what kind of surveillance tests are needed to find out if other tumors in the colorectal uh, area in the colon uh, occur, or whether testing is needed for other organs that might have been included in the irradiation field. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, And our next question, um, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Carolyn. This is an excellent seminar, as usual. Thank you. I have two questions. My first question is, my father had uh, colon cancer like tw- over 20 years ago. I don't know if it was HER2, but I am a HER2 breast cancer survivor 12 years ago. I'd like to know about the HER2 for colon cancer and the HER2 for breast cancer. And I did have colonoscopies every five um, five years, and I have IBS. So another question is the relationship. I did have also a Lynch test, and that was all negative. Since I'm wondering the genetics of getting possibly breast cancer now, I had, but getting possibly colon cancer since I did have breast cancer, and I want to know um, the differences. Thank you, for Dr. Benson. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I'm going to ask Dr. Mitchell if she could address this one. Um, and um, Dr. Mitchell, if you could address this question. Uh, yes, thank you for that question. Uh, it is very important to uh, evaluate the genomic profiles of the tumors, and the genetic counselors may be needed in certain situations to determine if there is a risk of Lynch's syndrome or some other uh, inherited or uh, genetic syndrome that you need to be aware of. Um, Certainly, uh, pancreatic cancer can occur more frequently, especially in um, breast cancer survivors. The same is true of colorectal cancer. So the best thing is to discuss it with your healthcare team and ask them if genetic counseling may need to be a part of your uh, overall treatment and surveillance plan. Excellent. And um, the question for Dr. Um, Benson. Um, so Dr. Benson, um, do you have any information on the rare type of cancer, medullary adenocarcinoma of the colon? Is it a hereditary type of cancer? Is it a hereditary type of cancer? Um. I actually uh, am not completely sure about the uh, inheritance pattern. It's, you know, quite uh, rare. Um, So uh, I I don't really know what the inheritance pattern is of that. Dr. Mitchell, do you? It is so rare that we cannot... um, determine the inheritance pattern. But again, the genomic profile of the tumor 
I think might be helpful, and my suggestion is um, to request a genomic profile of the patient's tumor. Yeah, I would add that um, for rare tumors, we're actually doing more and more uh, genomic testing. Uh, and, uh, in fact, uh, I mentioned the uh, NTRAC fusion, which may occur in less than 1% of colorectal cancer patients. But it's through genomic testing that we're learning more about these uh, rare events. And in some cases, we're actually able to develop therapeutic strategies that are unique for this. And certainly the NCI and our uh, NCI Comprehensive Cancer Centers are putting a lot of emphasis on the assessment of rare cancers so we can learn much more about them. Actually, it's a follow-up question that um, my doctor, if a doctor, uh, I guess Dr. Benson, uh, my doctor recommends genomic profiling. What does that mean, and what will that um, be used for? So, um, what we we typically mean now is what's referred to as next-generation sequencing, um, and uh, many of our centers can do genomic sequencing, but there are now a number of diagnostic companies uh, like uh, Tempest, Keras, Foundation Medicine uh, as just some examples, where we can send uh, either blood, uh, where we're looking at uh, cell-free DNA to uh, assess tumor genomics, or actual patient tumor samples that are sent for analysis. And uh, these uh, uh, tests um, vary in terms of the number of genes that are evaluated, but it's often hundreds of different genes. And what we're looking for is um, uh, a gene profile that can influence treatment selection. Now, uh, Having said that, what has been more typical is that either in the hospital or tumor is sent to one of these companies to assess for individual genes. So I mentioned looking for RAS mutation status. And uh, every uh, person, certainly with metastatic colorectal cancer, should have MSI or the equivalent uh, mismatch repair testing. They should have RAS testing. I didn't get to talk about BRAF testing. BRAF uh, uh, mutations occur in about 10% or maybe a little less of colorectal cancer patients. But uh, Dr. Mitchell emphasized clinical trials. Well, this is a great example. We took a relatively uncommon event, BRAF mutation, did clinical trials, and now there are several combination therapies that um, improve outcome for people with uh, BRAF mutations. So it's essential to also look for BRAF mutation status. Um, when we do NGS testing, uh, this goes beyond just testing individual 
uh, genes or molecular events, but a, a whole series of, of genes. But as I mentioned, by doing this, we are actually developing treatments that help people with, for example, uh, RAS wild-type tumors or BRAF mutated tumors, or in the case of MSI tumors, the use of immunotherapy. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Mitchell. Um, uh, should only stage four um, colorectal cancer patients ask for tumor genomic profiling? Um, patients repeatedly tell us that lower stage testing is not covered by insurance. Um, oh, so again, that's a part of the financial toxicity that I mentioned. And there are some uh, companies that um, earlier testing of tumor is very important. And why is that important? Uh, it's important because it can give prognostic information. It can give information on whether this is a rare tumor. For example, uh, with BREF, uh, as Dr. Benson mentioned, uh, BREF marker in a colon tumor uh, has certain indications, uh, both for prognosis but uh, potential therapies. So uh, what I try to do is make sure I have a plan for every patient, and that plan is better defined early rather than uh, later when there is evidence of metastatic disease. This can be uh, discussed with your doctor. There are many ways of covering the cost. Uh, additionally, some uh, healthcare systems and academic institutions have laboratories within the system that can address um, a genomic profile for the tumor. So the best thing is not assume that it's not covered but ask the other question, how can you um, accomplish uh, financial coverage for the testing? And what, will, what benefit could it offer? And each individual patient, uh, certainly uh, the tumors are different, uh, the gen genomic profiles are different, and therefore very important to explore uh, these entities. And there are some uh, of of the uh, genomic markers that are standard of care. For example, NRAS, KRAS, and BRAF should be done on every single uh, colorectal cancer, unless it's the very low stage, like um, carcinoma in situ or stage one. Um, those tumors may not need uh, a profile early. Uh, but talk with your doctor about it and how ask how it can be accomplished. And so a very important takeaway is that what Dr. Mitchell is saying, and I think Dr. Benson would also agree, is that it's important if there's a cost issue to mention it to your physician because there's members of the team, the institution may be able to help, but there are other members of the team also that the doctor may refer you to to help you to get um, some assistance with cost. Um, there are all sorts of programs out there to be aware of that you might not know about 
Um, so not to make those assumptions. If someone says, if the insurance says it's not going to cover it, it's always good to have someone in the institution advocating for you. It's hard sometimes to do that all by yourself with everything else on your plate. Um, so just to be aware of that. Um, I know our staff do a lot of advocacy. A lot of institutions do that. And of course, your own institution. But most importantly, your healthcare team is eager to hear your concerns. Is that correct, Dr. Benson? Do you agree? Is that yeah, something that you for feel? sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And each mm -hmm. hospital system has different resources available, not only for determining genomic profiles, but in many cases they can help with uh, taxi cost or parking um, or transportation cost. Uh, so always ask the question if you need uh, any of these kinds of resources. Uh, ask the team about them. Excellent. Wow, this has been an extraordinary call. Um, we do have one la late, uh, last late-breaking question, and I'm, I'm going to address this to Dr. Mitchell. I'm 48 years old, and my mother had colon cancer, and her two brothers had colon cancer, and my grandfather had an ostomy. What should I tell my children who are 22 and 24? Dr. Mitchell, if you'd like to address that to start. Oh, well, that's, uh, I don't like to give out individual recommendations over the telephone, uh, but this is um, a case where we would want a genetic counselor involved, where we would uh, test the um, uh, patient's tumor uh, for profiles such as MSI, uh, for BRAF, for uh, NRAS, all of those tests should be done on every single uh, colorectal cancer. So start with those, ask the doctor about them, and determine uh, the findings. Uh, and based on the findings, there would be a recommendation for um, family, individual family members testing. In general, however, in a family where there's been another family member with a colorectal cancer, we re uh, recommend beginning screening at 10 years younger than the youngest patient uh, in that family with colon cancer. So if the youngest person is 48, we would recommend beginning testing for uh, younger individuals, 10 years younger, are at 38. But remember that the recommended age for testing of all individuals has changed in the last year, and that is colorectal cancer screening is recommended for every individual uh, at age 45. That's very important. Okay. And Dr. Benson, do you want to add anything? No, I I would agree. I mean, it just puts emphasis on knowing your family history and discussing that uh, with physicians. And uh, and also, I I would emphasize not ignoring symptoms. Um, we have heard uh, only too often, uh, you're too young to have colon cancer. And when someone has, for example, rectal bleeding. So uh, we can't ignore symptoms, and we need to know uh, family history because 
that can be critical in the uh, assessment of the individual as well as potentially for the family. I want to thank our speakers. You've been actually um, phenomenal, just really a terrific, um, uh, terrific, um, each one of you, um, just wonderful. Um, um, and, um, oh, I, oh, here's a question. <laughs> I could have just, we were just going to butt in, but are insurance companies covering colonoscopies at age 45? Is that change in screening? Is that um, is that something we have to advocate for? Is that now is it now being covered? Yes, um, screening colonoscopies as recommended uh, are in general uh, covered by most insurances. Excellent. Okay. All right. Well, now we've taken every question we can, and I want to thank our speakers again just for being phenomenal. Um, I also want to thank all of you on the call, actually, who asked such great questions, really. Um, the questions really enhance our program today, and so we really appreciate that. Um, and then and just in kind of wrapping up, if for those of you who asked a question, we still recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team with your question, with the answers you got today, and, and again, they can customize it to you. But Remember that you can ask your physicians any question you want to. That's really important. I hope that's an important takeaway. Also, in terms of, I know you all like to search out other resources as well. So we often recommend the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have a um, uh, they have a website, and they also have a toll-free number that's available to all of you. And um, we will be sending that to all of you in your resources. So you'll be getting that. But their 800 number is 1-800-422. 6237. What's nice about it is they actually, um, they're information specialists who really will talk with you about your concerns and questions. And also, um, they also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature where you can post your questions. So that's anywhere in the world or in the U.S. Um, you can post your question, and an information specialist will then respond back to you. And so that's another way of getting your questions addressed from a credible uh, resource. We would like you to do that. And also the, the two organizations that I mentioned up front that are both collaborating on today's program, they're wonderful resources for you as well. And you'll be getting their information, both the Colorectal Cancer Alliance and Fight Colorectal Cancer. Um, they have uh, 800 numbers and websites that you could also visit as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not anyone, want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with colorectal cancer or in coping with cancer in general. We want you to know that you're now part of a really large community of support, and we're, also, we're all here to help you. Um, for those of you who wish to pursue any counseling services or practical and financial assistance from cancer care, you can contact us. Um, you have all of our numbers, and we'll be, at the end of the program, you'll all be getting an evaluation, which will include all the resources and um, all of the uh, telephone numbers and websites of organizations that we think could be of further help to you. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to remind you that we have some very interesting programs coming up that you might be interested in. One of them is called um, Caregiving for Your Loved One with Cancer. That's on March 19th. Another one is Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments on April 15th. And Joys and Challenges of Pets in Your Home When You Have Cancer, uh, Monday, April 8th. So you'll be getting information about all those upcoming programs. And again, I want to thank you all for participating today and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.